0: Okay, well that's a bummer, no visuals today, and I have a lot of visuals, so it's a bummer. Alright, well we're going to go a little bit out of order today, Um, maybe I should pray, and then we'll start. God, I thank you for who you are, thank you for your word, Um, I pray that the visuals might start to work, that the Chromecast might pick up, and it might... uh, Make a connection so we can see what I've prepared for us to see today. If not, I pray that you would help us to get a clear mental picture of what it is that we're going to be talking about, and that you would help us to have a, a greater appreciation for your word, a greater understanding of how we got your word, and that you would be high and lifted up in our minds and in our hearts. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we'll go ahead and turn to. The end of Mark 16, we're, as I said, going a little bit out of order today, so we're not going to be going uh, immediately proceeding where we were. We went over the last couple of weeks over the crucifixion of Christ, and we went up through verse 41, I believe, of Mark 15. And next week, Jerry's going to be picking up in verse 42 of 15 and going over the resurrection of Christ. But today I'm going to be skipping toward the end of Mark, and um, I really wanted to show you different pictures that I have of different endings of Mark, because it ends differently in different uh, versions. And so I actually want to go through and um, I'll explain to you how they end differently, even if I can't show you a picture of the different Bibles, that the translations that I have that end differently. in. Actually, maybe we should read the text first, because the, the passage that's in question, that ends differently, starts at verse 9 of 16. It's referred to as the longer ending of Mark. So I'll go ahead and I'll start reading from 16, 9 through 20. It says, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They, were, they went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen and he said to them go into the other go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned these signs will accompany those who have believed in my name they will cast out demons they will speak with new tongues They will pick up serpents and they will drink and drink any deadly poison and it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord himself worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. And that's the end of that section, then there's a different ending for the Gospel of Mark in addition to that. But in the King James Version, all those verses are included, verses 9 through 20, without, at least in the versions that I own, without any footnotes, without any brackets, it's just there as a part of the text. In the New King James Version, it still contains all of those verses, however, there's a footnote at the bottom of the page, And that footnote says that verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in NU text, which stands for the Nestle Allen Greek New Testament and United Bible Society, as not original. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, which are two of the most important, oldest codexes that we have. Uh, Although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. So again, the verses in question are verses 9 through 20. Uh, The Legacy Standard Bible, which is fairly new, has uh, brackets, but no footnotes, again, in my version that I happen to have. But it also includes with it the shorter ending of Mark. And some of your Bibles might have the shorter ending of Mark in it as well. Um, I'll read to you from my copy in the New American Standard. It says, so this would be in some of the older manuscripts, replacing verses 9 through 20. It says, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And so that's often referred to as the shorter ending of Mark. So we have the longer ending, the shorter ending, or what some people would refer to as the abrupt ending, just ending at verse 8, which really does end rather abruptly Verse 8 says that they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid, period. And that's the end. And actually it's even more abrupt in the Greek because it ends with the word for, gar. Um, They were afraid for, period. And it just stops right there. So three different endings uh, for this one book that we've been going through for over a year now. Let me read to you a couple of other ways that different modern translations end. Uh, The American Standard Bible that I just read to you, it has brackets and footnotes indicating that these verses, verses 9 through 20, are in question somehow. And that footnote says that a few later manuscripts, um, no, actually it says that some of the oldest manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. But it also has a footnote for the shorter ending of Mark, which says a few later manuscripts add and versions contain this paragraph, usually after verse eight, and if you also have it at the end of chapter 16, meaning at the end of 20. So there are several different ways that Mark ends. Uh, The English standard version has a note within the body of the text, so you don't even have to go down and look at a footnote or a side note to see that uh, they find question with these verses. They want you to see that right within the body of the text. It says, within the body of the text, that some of the earliest manuscripts do not contain 16, 9 through 11. And in fact, within those texts, it has 9 through 20 in double brackets. Same with the NET Bible. Uh, The New International Version includes them, but it has um, included, again, within the body of the text, a note from the editors saying that it's in question somehow and same with the new living translation new living translation has a note for the longer ending within the body of the text and a note for the shorter ending within the body of the text and then they have a detailed footnote which says the most reliable early manuscripts conclude that the gospel of mark conclude the gospel of mark at verse 8 other manuscripts include various endings to the gospel two of the more noteworthy endings are printed here so That's a lot of different ways to conclude this one book of the Bible, right? So uh, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is going on here? How is the book of Mark supposed to end? And we'll definitely get to that and address that toward the end of the class. But before we do that, I think we have to first address the bigger issue of textual criticism. What is textual criticism? Um, How do we approach it? Do we accept it and embrace it or do we reject it? how do we deal with textual criticism? And this is a relatively recent field, that of textual criticism. Only within the last hundred years or so, people have started to go back and look through manuscripts of the, the Bible, original manuscripts in, in Greek or in other languages to try to figure out, okay, what did the Bible originally say? Because different manuscripts might read differently, as we're seeing evidence of here at the end of Mark. Um, and so to, to embark in this kind of endeavor, we need a lot of manuscripts, which we have always had access to a lot of manuscripts. We haven't always had the travel capabilities that we have now, and so therefore this is a, as I said, a relatively recent uh, practice to go back and to compare these manuscripts in a, a critical sense. When I say critical sense, I don't mean that they're being critical of the Bible, they're trying to uh, cut and paste the Bible or, or take a Sharpie and just cross out things that they don't like. Um, that's not how we approach textual criticism, but it's rather to um, to compare in uh, a way as to find out what the original authors meant, to go back to the originals, uh valuing their perspective over our perspective there are a lot of people who are more liberal and they will in fact take that kind of approach to the bible well we're just going to cut this out because it's in in the old testament so that doesn't apply to us or these words aren't in red they're not spoken by jesus so i'm not going to give that as much weight as i do the the red letters that's not at all what textual criticism is textual criticism again goes back to the original Values the uh, perspectives of the the human authors over our own perspective. Um, this is a, a practice. Textual criticism is a practice that can tend to make a lot of Christians uncomfortable. Just wondering. Okay, well, is my Bible really trustworthy? Why are there different endings to this? Why is there one verse in some translations and not in others? And it can have that, that tendency to make us uncomfortable, and I totally get that. However, it shouldn't make us uncomfortable. We have a, a vast array of textual manuscripts at our disposal. Um, you could even get online and, and go and look them up. I spent way too much time this week looking up um, like original manuscripts, which is kind of cool. You can like get on and you can see from different universities in Germany or in France or in Switzerland, uh, the the manuscripts that we have that are like thousands of years old that date back to the the second and third century and They're in different languages and it will even translate it for you into English And so you can see okay. Well, this is what this scribe wrote and sometimes they'll have like little doodles on the side um, They'll wrap up uh, like mark in I think it's in Sinaiticus uh the scribe puts little doodles along the bottom of the end of Mark just saying, this is it, I'm done. And that's kind of a practice that he has whenever he finishes the different books. He has four different books that he uh, was a scribe for in Sinaiticus and he did that. It's just cool to really go back and see, like we have photographic copies of these manuscripts that we can have access to and that's something that is, Brand new to, to our generation, even 20, 30 years ago, we wouldn't be able to, to do that. So, um, all that to say, we shouldn't be uh, concerned about the fact that there are differences. In fact, those differences should be expected. Uh, one of the reasons I really wanted visuals today is because I wanted to show you, uh, I tried to illustrate. How this might work for us and what I did is I put a, a star up on the top of the page a little gold star which would be representing the original copy of Mark so we know that all scripture is God breathed right it's literally breathed out by God and as such it's breathed out infallibly with without error right it's inerrant in its original as Mark is sitting down he's penning this copy of the gospel to those who are in Rome Uh, most likely the words of Peter, as we've discussed, that is literally God-breathed. However, after that, surely that church wanted to make copies for other local churches, right? To to spread out this gospel. This is a a masterpiece. This is a gem. We need to share this with other local churches. And so they would take scribes and they would write it down and and copy it, but they wouldn't do it perfectly, right? Because God never promised that any time that a scribe picked up a pen to write down the bible they would do it inherently without error they're humans they're fallible they're going to make mistakes and so i had this gold star up at the top representing uh mark the original and then four gold stars underneath well one of them was just slightly tinted green because there's a little bit of difference right a little bit of error that's going to sneak in just by human uh, infallibility or fallibility and then one of the other stars was a little bit more pointy. And as the, the images progress, representing these manuscripts, you can start to see that these uh, stars develop into families. These different manuscripts will develop into families of manuscripts, where other scribes will take a, a copy that they have, they have access to one copy of a manuscript of Mark, and maybe that was a copy that had a. A little bit of an error a misspelling in one spot or a couple of words that were switched around another spot and they would copy that in the same fashion the same way and pass it along to their church and this happens hundreds of times and throughout time we start to develop different families of texts that have uh, different things that are unique to that family different errors or misspellings um, but if you go back and you compare them to one another you're able to see that uh, of it is similar, right? And so that helps you to be able to isolate, to identify and isolate that 1% that differs and uh, to identify, okay, well, this wasn't original because it differs from the others. Uh, Again, I wish I really had a a visual to show you because in my example, just telling you, those four stars, only one of them was tinted green, right? And all four of them are stars. And so you're able to, compare and say, okay, well, I got three gold stars and one almost gold star. And so you can deduce that the one who, the one that isn't fully gold is the one that is an error, right? And uh, textual criticism helps us with this and being able to identify um, and, and compare with one another to tell where they originated from, what families they were from, um, and also to see any major outliers. Yes, Joseph.
1: I think this is working on our end, I don't know if you want to try it
0: again. Hmm. I can give it a shot, I suppose. Let me see, I'm going to have to click back in here a different way, maybe. Um. No? Are the TVs still on? Uh, well, let's see.
1: There,
0: over, over on the left. Oh, there we go. All right, so let me enter full screen here. There we go. I need to get my notes back.
1: Hey, Good job, Joseph.
0: at four. That's still not right. There we go. Okay, so here are all the versions I was telling you about. We're not going to look at them now. Alright, let's see if I can get back to where I was. There's a bunch of stuff about textual criticism. There's my pretty little star I was telling you about. Alright, so imagine that represents Mark um, and and realize that was perfect, um, but there were copies that were made that were imperfect, right? And so, again, looking at those, you can compare them with one another. You can tell, um, okay, well, this one's a little bit off in one area. This other one might be a little bit off in a different area. But by comparing them, you can get back to the original and tell what what the original would have said. And as copies were made from copies, they're going to carry with them the distinctives that they're the parent copy had, they're going to carry with them um, any, again, spelling errors or mistakes you might see. And you can start to see that certain families are starting to develop, you can see the, the groupings and where they originated from, where they came from. And you can also tell when a manuscript has been influenced by other families of text. So for example, that one kind of greenish star in the middle, it's not quite as green as the ones on the right but you can tell that it's had a little bit of influence from this other family. And so perhaps when you're going through manuscripts, you might find one manuscript, um, a Coptic manuscript, say, that has a little bit more influence from an Alexandrian family that perhaps they had access to multiple manuscripts as they were copying down their manuscript, which, again, wasn't really common because they were living in uh, such a an age where First of all, they had persecution, so to go out and say, hey, I'm gonna write a copy of the Bible, I need to get all the manuscripts that I can, that wasn't really something that was favored. Uh, And they also just had limitations as far as travel and access goes as well. You can also tell when a manuscript um, is completely off. So right off the bat, that blue star on your screen kind of pops out at you, right? That one's different, there's something Uh, that is unique there and so having so many different manuscripts and copies of manuscripts helps us to identify major outliers and so while some people might look at this and say okay well you have all these different manuscripts and they all have differences within them and they might see well that look at that as detrimental look at that as a negative thing there are uh, many more positives that far outweigh the negatives. Again, being able to compare with one another, being able to tell where they originated from, and being able to identify major outliers that are different and unique. And we have copies that are completely unique. Uh, Codex Bezae, for example, is kind of weird. It's kind of strange. It has uh, different stuff that other manuscripts don't have at all. Uh, in Luke 6, 4, it has... whole extra verse that no other manuscript has it's just kind of in that one manuscript alone it has full chunks of acts that are taken out and yet it's longer its version of acts is longer than all the other manuscripts of acts because it adds in different uh other stuff within acts and so it's different it's an outlier but we're able to identify it as an outlier because we have all these other manuscripts that we have to compare it to um because of the great number of manuscripts, we can identify these sole outliers. And uh, oftentimes, even when the manuscripts were being copied, they were recognized as outliers because that, that family just kind of ends sometimes. Um, we have nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts. I think about 5,800 is the last number that we have of Greek manuscripts. And that's just in Greek. We have other manuscripts, uh, Coptic and Latin and uh, Arminian, and those all add up to 20,000 additional copies. So some 25, 26,000 manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, far more than any other work in antiquity by far. Um, and then, so we have just, this is a sampling really of the number of manuscripts that we have at our disposal. And when you compare them all together, um, and put them side by side, we can start to get a, a bigger picture of what God's word was originally and what was not God's word originally. And looking at them all together can kind of bring us back to the beginning and give us a, a greater understanding, greater appreciation of what God has given us um, by comparing the, the differences and Again, the differences are, are minute, but um, even within the differences, we can um, come back to a, a fairly confident understanding of what God's Word was originally. Any thoughts or questions at this point? Yeah? Do we have any manuscripts that were sure are directly from Mark? Um, any not, not any of the originals. Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, we don't have anything that we could say is an original. There would have to be like several pieces of criteria that would have to be in place. But we have stuff that goes back to like within a one century, which is far beyond anything else that uh, we have in, in any other work. Uh, I put a footnote down here, let me see. Uh, Tacitus Annals, the closest we can get to that is 750 years. We only have two manuscripts for that. Plato's Dialogues, we have seven copies of that, and the gap between when he wrote it and the earliest copy that we have is 1,200 years. Uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, Wars. we only have 10 copies of that, and there's a 900-year gap between when he wrote it and when we have it. So again, we have over 20,000 manuscripts, over 25,000 manuscripts, and some within one century. Andy. So I, I read something when I
1: actually heard process by which they would transfer this. They didn't have paper like mm-hmm. we do. They didn't have heat, <laughs> so and they didn't have cooling. So you, you kind of picture in your mind a uh, monk or somebody sitting in a castle, basically. It's freezing cold in the wintertime. Yeah. He's got a candle. He's got um, feather pens and ink, and he's writing on like parchment. Yep. So it's uneven, it's bumpy, and he's basically reading from this onto this, and then they were also. Have
0: And there are different words that sound the same, just like in English. Exactly. If you're saying plane, is that like an airplane or is that like P-L-A-I-N or two? There's several different ways to spell two, and so yeah, there are several different ways to make a mistake, just uh hearing something wrong or seeing something wrong, or writing something wrong. And all this while well, they know that their lives are in danger. If somebody catches them for making this copy, they could be killed. Joseph. I was Um, yeah, there were several. I forgot the specifics. Um, remember when Mark is writing, or not Mark, when Paul is writing, he says, look at what large letters I write with. And so a lot of that would be like two different types of handwriting, like one from an Emanuensis scribe, and then the author would write the last paragraph out or the last sentence to say, well, this is me. And so it would have to be a couple of different kinds of um, handwriting. It would be on papyri it wouldn't be in a codex a codex is like a, a sealed book type more like what we have today and that didn't come around for a couple hundred years after that and yeah they have a a list of criteria that's like six or seven and they don't have any that even really get close to being an original Several different things that they haven't found yet, and so when looking at manuscripts, there are two competing thoughts about how to compare these thousands of manuscripts. That's a lot of that, a lot of manuscripts to go through, um, and trying to figure out, okay, what is the original? How do we come to the original? The the first way of thinking is to go with the majority text. Well, we have. 15,000 copies that say X, only 10,000 copies that say Y, so X must be the, the proper reading. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. I think a better method is to accept the oldest reading rather than just accepting the majority reading. Uh, let's focus back in on that one outlier, if you can still see it, that little blue uh, star up toward the top. We're testing your age now to see. Yeah, Greg's, Greg's squinting back there. Um, If we focus back in there and imagine that rather than that being cast out as an outlier, if it was embraced uh, and accepted worldwide, we would end up with something like this, right? Where what we end up with at the bottom is fairly different from what we end up with at the top. I mean, at the end of the day, there's still stars, right? And so we're not talking about the Bible as a whole. We're talking about like zooming into one particular verse or one particular passage again like the gospel of mark and if you were to go with the majority reading you'd end up with uh, what changed later on down the line several uh, generations after the original whereas if you go with an older reading then um, all these they're going to be informative for your decision but they're not going to uh, determine what was originally written so those are the The two primary ways of thinking, going with the majority reading or going with the oldest reading. Uh, And I'm quite convinced that going with the the oldest reading is the better method. It was
1: self-correcting.
0: And there's really nothing like this where there's one manuscript and it just absolutely takes over everything after that. But I'm just saying, using this as an example of why going with the majority reading might not be the best way to determine the originality of a text. Any other thoughts or discussions? All right, I will move on. I wanna bring up a couple of uh, important translations. Uh, the first is the Latin Vulgate. Since about 400 AD, the Latin Vulgate, around 400 AD, that Latin Vulgate became the standard. Jerome wrote the the Bible in Latin. That became the standard uh, practice, a standard text that was used for over a thousand years. And then in 1516, a Dutch priest named Erasmus finished and published the Textus Receptus. Um, Oftentimes you'll see it abbreviated the TR, means the received text. And so he did this um, by compiling different manuscripts, and it was actually the first critical edition of a Greek New Testament. Um, Again, compiling different manuscripts, trying to get the best reading, critical not in the sense of reading it to critique it, but trying to find the most informed, the best reading that... He could, and uh, this was a, a great thing to do. I think it was a, an amazing project. Um, however, there are a couple of problems with the way that this came about. The first is that this project was rushed to production to beat out the competition so that it could indeed be the first critical uh, Greek New Testament, because there were other ones that were in the works. And so they were trying to get it done rather quickly And again, Erasmus, even though he was 1,500 years after Christ, he was still very limited in his ability to get hold of manuscripts and his ability to travel. And so he was doing all this work based off of six Greek manuscripts. Uh, Remember, there are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. He had six of them, and he's trying to compile them. Uh, Oftentimes he would have to back translate from Latin into Greek, Um, just himself because he didn't have a Greek manuscript. And so he would take Jerome's uh, Latin Vulgate and then just translate that himself into Greek. Um, It was a a great work and became the foundation for Martin Luther's translation into German, for Tyndale's translation into English. And it's the foundation what the King James version is based off of. Um, But there were definitely some limitations that he came up against in producing this work. And so with that said, um, I want to look at some examples of textual variants. The first being this very common one, this very popular one in 1 John 5, 7, called the Comma Johannium. And this is different and unique because of Erasmus's work with the Textus Receptus, because of um, what he did with those six manuscripts which were translated ultimately into, as I mentioned, the King James Version. Um, so here are several verses, or several translations rather, of First John 5, 7. And if you sat close enough, you might notice that most of them just say something along the lines of, for there are three that testify. There are three that testify. So we have three witnesses. However, the King James Version, again, going back to the Texas Receptus that Erasmus authored, it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That one is very different from the other translations. Well, in Erasmus's first two editions of the Textus Receptus, he didn't include this verse. He left it out. And somebody uh, was able to produce a manuscript that had this within it, and he included it in his third uh, edition. In fact, there's some evidence that suggests that he had knowledge of that manuscript beforehand. He intentionally left it out of the first two, and uh, there may have been some coercion in order for him to include it in his third edition of, um, of the Texas Receptus. But, this particular verse, First John 5, 7, the latter part of it, is found in less than ten manuscripts. Again, all those thousands of manuscripts that we have is found in less than 10. None of them before the 10th century. So, uh, no matter what perspective you have on how to find the best reading, whether it's finding the majority text or the oldest text, First uh, John 5:7, the Kama Johaniaum, it doesn't uh, doesn't cut it either way. Uh, this is probably the most controversial. Uh, textual variant that we have because it is so theologically rich it would be a great verse to have to point to and say well here's a great verse on the trinity however we have to realize that uh, our doctrine of the trinity is in no way dependent upon first john 5 7 Uh, it's sprinkled all throughout scripture uh, and we want to be true to the text rather than taking a minority position so that we can have a, a great verse to add to our arsenal it's most likely that some scribe just put this in as a side note or he was making personal notes maybe as you guys do throughout sermons in a a bulletin or on the side of your bible in the margin of your bible like i often do and it got copied by nine other scribes and we now have oh maybe not even nine because it's in less than 10 manuscripts um some types of textual variants. We already talked about different ways that they can come about by hearing stuff incorrectly or reading or just writing stuff incorrectly. We are fallible beings. Um, But most variants are far less exciting than the Kama johannium uh, and very inconsequential. It's just a matter of misspelled words or switched letters. Um, That's very common in... uh, this type of work, as Andy was mentioning, under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure to do uh, very difficult, very important work.
1: Misspell, misspell.
0: I did misspell, misspell, <laughs> and I switched letters on letters as well. Sorry. <laughs> Good job, lovely, Andy. <laughs> correctly yeah. Thanks for not pointing out all the other times I misspelled stuff, because I'm sure it's all throughout. <laughs> um, Other textual variants include omissions, just leaving out a word. Again, when you're copying down word after word after word under such high-stress situation, it's very easy to miss a word. There are 31,000 verses in the Bible. There are many more words than that. It could be very easy to miss a word. Uh, To transpose a word, just to switch words. A very common example is Jesus Christ versus Christ Jesus. That happens often. because you're just getting your mind and you're writing down, you know, Jesus Christ, but it was supposed to be Christ Jesus. Well, that counts as a textual variant. Uh, substitution in John four, one, it says that when Jesus knew talking about the woman at the well and other uh, manuscripts will read when the Lord knew rather than when Jesus that counts as a textual variant, uh, very common mistake that uh, when you're writing down again, just I'm going to put in Christ rather than Jesus. It's something that you do by mistake often without even realizing it. Uh, You could do this by addition too, just adding a a word or a section of scripture um, that will count as a textual variant. And so looking at these common types of textual variants and going back to our example of 1 John 5, 7, what would that qualify as that textual variant? What type of textual variant would that be? Yeah, it's an addition, right? So again, one scribe probably just added that, um, maybe not even intending for it to be understood as scripture, just that's his own personal note or a side note, um, something he wanted to communicate, and it was passed on and somehow ended up in some of our modern versions. Um, There are a, a lot of additions. Most additions are only a word. There are several that are single verses by far the two longest editions that we have are uh, John 7:58 through 8:11, and our passage we're talking about today, Mark 16, 9 through 12, both of these being uh, 12 verses in length. And just real quick, I'll talk on that passage in John. Uh, that's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, that's a a Hard one for a lot of people because it's a beloved story where this woman was caught in adultery and Jesus came and he stooped down he wrote in the dirt um, and He sent them away after saying well let he who was without sin cast first stone and they all went away from the oldest the youngest and perhaps that happened, but we don't have a whole lot of textual evidence to um, To suggest that it was original to the text. Maybe the story itself was original I kind of happen to think that it was but I don't think it was originally in uh, the Bible. A couple of reasons. It's missing from our best and earliest manuscripts. P66 and P75 don't have it. Those are very early manuscripts. Again, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, um, both within the 4th century. They don't mention this story at all. Um, Bruce Metzger, a textual critic, he says that no Greek church father before the 12th century comments on this passage. Uh, and I think the most damning evidence for this particular story is that it's found in several different places within manuscripts. So it's searching for a home. Uh, Some have this at the end of Luke 21. Some families put it at the end of Luke 24. Uh, One family puts it at the end of the Gospel of John. Several put it right here in the middle of the Gospel of John where we have it in most of our Bibles. Um, So there's little evidence that that was an original story within the text of scripture however again we shouldn't be concerned with that we shouldn't let that shake our faith i know that it can be a little bit disconcerting uh when you're reading in your bible and it says well in the footnotes or in the the side notes that earliest manuscripts don't have this i remember i was talking to my mom brought this to her attention and she said yeah I, i i don't like that and i can sympathize with that i can understand that Um, but i think it's much better to to have this evidence and to be um, aware of it than to be ignorant of it and to think okay well everything that is presented before me is um, 100 certainty i'd rather know where the the variance lay than just be in ignorance a couple other examples of textual variance within the gospel of mark that we've been going over In Mark 1, 41, uh, when Jesus is dealing with the leper, it talks about him being moved with compassion. And some other translations say that Jesus was indignant or um, that he was uh, annoyed at this man, at at what was going on. And so differences there that could arise. Again, this is just one word. And um, yeah, I'll stop there. Another example, Mark 9.31, some manuscripts say that he shall rise three days later, and other versions, uh, which are referencing other manuscripts, say that he will rise three days after, or he will rise after three days. Again, very slight difference, but will he rise in three days or will he rise after three days? That's one example of substitution that we have within the book of Mark. then another example do you guys remember when we were in mark uh five we were talking about the woman the hemorrhaging woman who was dealing with this loss of blood and i mentioned that luke doesn't uh, talk about how she spent all of her money on doctors and i thought that was kind of funny because he was a doctor and he just kind of left that out well apparently there are some uh manuscripts that do include that in mark and so Um, well we can kind of see that here is Luke 8.43 and the NASB that I use says and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone and that's where the verse ends but uh, again going back to the um, to the Texas Receptus which the King James uses it has uh, according to my Bible software 57% difference it says and a woman having an issue of blood 12 years which had spent all of her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any." And then it goes on from there. So that's another example of a textual variant um, where it's borrowing from perhaps other portions of scripture where the scribe just inserted that within Luke eight forty-three 43, within some manuscripts. But that's within the minority of manuscripts that you find that extended version of Luke 8, 43. As a a general rule, um, it's better to embrace the the shorter, more complicated versions. Uh, If you come across uh, two different manuscripts, those who are comparing those will take the shorter one because scribes were more likely to add clarity to a passage, to add more to a passage, just like we saw with First John 5, 7, um, and to make it make sense, to try to simplify it. So if you find uh, something that's more obscure, then uh, those critics are more likely to embrace a more obscure, smaller section than a larger, uh, more clear section. All right, so finally, what about the longer ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20? Um, As you could probably tell from the several different versions and several different translations, ways that it's translated, there isn't necessarily a general consensus. But those who favor the majority text, they tend to embrace the longer ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, because it is within probably 95% of manuscripts. Um, whereas those who prefer the older text don't think that it was original. I want to share with you this resource. I found it very helpful. This is a four views book, Perspectives on the Longer Ending of Mark, uh, by Daryl Bach and Daniel Wallace and others. They all wrote their own understanding of the Longer Ending of Mark. And then uh, this website here from the Swiss, Nas- Swiss National Science Foundation mark 16.siv.swiss, um, they did a, a Mark sixteen project where they found different manuscripts from all over the place and different evidence for why they have why they favor one reading over another. Um, here is a picture. I was telling you about these manuscripts before. This is a picture of an Arabian manuscript found in or found near Zurich, Switzerland, which is pretty cool. And then you have the English translation there. You can pull up the text and look at it in uh, the original language or in the English. And here, this one has a chapter break right in between Mark 16.8 and Mark 16.9, which is kind of interesting. Um, This is a Coptic manuscript that is found at a university in Germany. And you can see the English translation alongside of it. Um, And the scribe here left two notes, one at the top and one at the bottom. Uh, And it says that in other copies, these are added. This is talking about the longer ending of Mark. And so the scribe went through, went to the effort of saying these are added, but he still uh, included that text within his manuscript. So he just like our modern translation editors left a note to, let people know, hey, this isn't in all manuscripts, kind of uh, beware. Uh, A little warning for us. Um, Eusebius, he was an early church historian around 300 AD. He acknowledged the existence of other manuscripts uh, ending at both verse 8 and verse 20 and he said that this, in his opinion, is the most that in his opinion, the most accurate copies concluded at verse 8. So he recognized, okay, well, there's some longer endings, there's some of these abrupt endings, but he said the most accurate concluded at verse 8. Again, it's not in Codex Citing Atticus or Codex Vaticanus, both 4th century, they both stop at verse 8. About 30 manuscripts have some sort of note that, um, just like that last one that we looked at, that um, perhaps it should end at verse 8 or verses 9 through 20 aren't, original several others have like an, an indentation for verses four verses 9 through 20 or some sort of asterisks just to let the reader know hey this is there's something a little bit different going on with these verses um, it is however in the diatessaron which is a second century harmony of the Gospels um, so it's not like a, a translation but it's a harmony of the Gospels which is in the second century uh, which is really early, which makes sense why it would be so widely embraced by a lot of people. So it's hard to fall one way or another for sure on the longer ending of Mark. A couple other quotes here. Uh, This one from Jerome, who was around in the 4th century AD. He says, Scarcely any copies of the gospel, almost all the Greek codices, are without the passage, that is Mark 16, 9 through 20. And yet, even though he knew that it was a minority who had, that had Mark sixteen nine through 20. He still included it in the Latin Vulgate. Um, again, when scribes were coming to a text and they were unsure, it's better to include something that may not be the word of God than to exclude the word of God. So they were much more likely to include rather than to exclude. Uh, this is the same approach that Lego takes, right? When they're building their little Lego sets, They don't want to leave out any Lego pieces that are vital to making your Lego set, and so they're much more likely to include some extra pieces. Uh, Same with the Ikea guys, right, who are giving you screws for your furniture. They're more likely to give you extras and leave you confused rather than to leave you lacking a screw or something. Um, Victor of Antioch, he was around in the 5th or 6th century, he says, very many copies of the gospel end at verse 8 and very many end at verse 20. (laughs) So this is longer and longer. So again, Eusebius, third century, Jerome fourth, victor of Antioch was fifth or sixth. So the longer uh, down the chain would go, the more copies there are of the longer ending. And uh, one of the authors from that four views book I showed you, uh, David Black, he says that what became majority reading in the middle ages started out as minority reading. So at one point, the longer ending was minority reading, but it was copied over and over again more and more times to the point that it became the majority reading. All right. Um, I don't know that we're going to have time for this. I'll fly through this real quick. Some internal evidence for why Mark 16, 9 through 20 may not be original. Uh, verse 8 was talking about the women. It mentioned the women at uh, the tomb. Verse 9 begins with he. Talking about Jesus automatically. It's Kind of awkward the way that it reads. Verse 9 also introduces Mary as a new figure. You see those different references there. Mary's already mentioned in 1540, 1547, 161. And uh, Mark sixteen nine kind of introduces her as a a new person. It says that uh, Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. Another problem is that Mark never mentioned this story of the seven demons. So for him to go back and say, well, the one who Jesus cast seven demons out of, He never mentioned that in the first place, so it's kind of awkward that he would have done that in Mark 16.9. Mark 16.9 repeats the first day of the week, which is already mentioned back in 16.2. Again, just kind of reads awkward. Uh, The grammar and syntax differs drastically from Mark 1.1 to Mark 16.8 from what we find in 16.9 through 20. Um, There are several examples I could give you, but I'm not going to because we are out of time. Um, And that's about it. So, again, I mentioned that we went out of order a little bit. Next week, Gary's going to go over uh, the resurrection. The following week, um, we will review our 56-week series by playing Jeopardy! once again. And then, um, on the 14th, is that right? We're going to be stepping into Daniel. So, I'm excited to be starting a new book. Um, I just ordered some... Jim, I have to talk to you about this and apologize and ask for forgiveness. I ordered some ESV journals for Daniel so you guys can take notes and um, read alongside of what we have in Daniel. So that's coming up later next month, next year. So I'm excited for that. We have to end. I'll pray real quick. God, thank you again for your word. I thank you that the visuals did get going and thank you for Joseph and Danielle, their hard work back there and I pray that you would help us
1: to focus on you and worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.